The Christmas story is what human history was building towards for thousands of years. And actually, the Christmas story has to be put in the, in the story that it firmly rests in, which is the story of the Bible, which is the story of history in general, in order to understand what it means. And so we need to place it firmly in that story. So I'm going to very briefly kind of go through that story to give us the context for knowing where we're landing this morning as we look at God's word. So it starts with God creating the world and declaring it good. Do you want to do this slide? Thanks, Reeves. He created man and woman as the pinnacle of that creation and then declared it to be very good. He created man and woman. It went from good to very good. Good. Creation was perfect and humanity had full access to God. There was no shame, there was no fear, there was no doubt. It was perfection. Then Adam and Eve, the representatives of the human race, decided to listen to the lies of the enemy and the desire within their own hearts to, to be God themselves and decided to go against the, the command of God, and they ate um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what resulted of that is that humanity was then cast out of God's presence, as God's holiness and justice stood firm against evil and injustice. That actually God casting humanity out of his presence in the garden wasn't a malicious thing. It wasn't a revengeful thing. It wasn't an emotional reaction. It was a victory on the part of God, of God standing firm against evil and injustice. That there was a, a justice in us being cast out because of what sin had done. However, God did not abandon his people. And in the very curse that cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, we see the first hint of the promise of Jesus. How an, the offspring of Eve would deal a mortal wound, a, a mortal wound to the enemy, to Satan, and in order to bring people back to God. And then we have this account of how sin works out over hundreds of years and we see the flood and kind of all these kind of stories where sin just works out again and again and again in people's lives and hearts until we arrive at a man called Abraham. And Abraham and his wife Sarah are living somewhere that is not what we would call the promised land, but actually God speaks to them and he calls them out of there into what we would call the promised land on this journey. And to Abraham, the promise is given that through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That through Abraham's descendants, the promise of Genesis 3 is being reiterated that the offspring of Eve will come and the nations of the world will be blessed. And then we have again this cycle of sin and, and kind of the, this Abraham's family now just repeating the same things that people have done. And they end up in Egypt and they end up in slavery in Egypt. And after 400 years of slavery, God delivers his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with signs and wonders. And they come finally through the Red Sea into freedom. But the people play the same story over and over again. That despite being shown incredible grace, and these people were even give, then given the law to say, if you live in this way, this is how you live in a right relationship with God. Despite those things, again and again and again, they sin, they rebel, they look to other things as gods in their own lives, they live their own way. But despite these things, through God's grace and actually his discipline in the wilderness, 
God brings the people into the land that he has promised. He's been faithful to the promise to Abraham. He's been faithful to the promise from Genesis 3. He brings these people into their land. And then we're introduced to a character called David. Now David, he becomes the king of Israel. He's known as a man after God's own heart and a worshipper. And he's also a sinner who has to come to God in repentance for some pretty grievous sin in his life. But despite of that, God gives a promise to David that God will establish one of his descendants with an everlasting kingdom and that the throne of David will be established forever. God has not forgotten his people or his promises. The promises of Genesis, the promises of Abraham are still there and present in his life. And then again, the story repeats in the same cycle of human history. There are some good kings They're mostly bad, and the good ones are also sinful, and they mess up, and they lead the nation astray and away from God. And this continues on for hundreds and hundreds of years until God sends his people into exile to a place called Babylon because of their consistent and unrepentant sin. And in this time, we get the people, the prophets, it's around this time that the prophets are speaking, and they're, they're speaking not in terms of kind of just judgment or, or promise, or that they're, they're saying there is the one coming, the one who was promised in Genesis, the one who was promised to Abraham, the one who's promised to David. He's coming, he's coming, he will bring the people back to God, he will bring you back to God, that you will be united with him once again. It's going to happen, it's coming, and it's, these are scattered again and again and again throughout all of the prophets, they're pointing to towards there, they're showing that it's moving somewhere. And then the people return from exile, and those things don't happen. Those things don't happen. The temple's rebuilt, but it's nothing like it was, and actually God's presence doesn't return to the temple. And then we have 400 years of apparent silence on the, on the part of God, and actually they're now under Roman occupation. The Romans come and conquer that part of the world as they did every other bit, and actually the people are stuck there. And it's into this context that the, these promises that God has spoken that we came to last week. We came to God speaking for the first time in 400 years to, to Zechariah and to, and to his wife Elizabeth about, about the birth of John the Baptist, to Mary by the angel that God has spoken into this moment. And the title for, for this week's sermon is The Unexpected Journey. Without giving the rest of the message away, it is going to be looking at the life of Joseph, who becomes the adopted father of Jesus. But as we look specifically into this part of the story, we need to bear in mind that there is another unexpected journey going on in the background. And this is the one that is adding weight, adding significance, adding glory to this event. That it's not just a random story of God doing this miraculous thing with one family at one time. That this is the weight of human history. This is the weight of the promises of God have been building and building and building, that the prophets have been speaking and the people of God are getting more and more hungry, more and more desperate as over thousands of years they've gone, we can't do it. We can't get back to God. We keep rebelling. We keep turning away and God keeps being good and we can't do it. We need the Messiah. We need the Savior. This is the narrative of God's people that is in their hearts as they speak. And we need to know that as we come to this text this morning, that is what's going on. That is what is being born into. And that is what the significance comes from. So let's dive into God's word, shall we? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. I'd love for you to follow along with me. I'd love you to see that it's God's word that speaks and is authoritative in our lives. 
So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we are first introduced to Joseph here as the man who is betrothed to Mary. We've already been introduced to Mary. We know who Mary is a little bit. So he's the man who's betrothed to Mary. Um, a word on betrothal, just because it can get confusing, because it seems like they're engaged, but then he looks to divorce her, and it seems a bit weird. So basically, betrothal is like a step up. It's like a step in between engagement and, and being married. And so basically, it's a commitment, rather than a promise, it's a commitment to say, in a year's time, we will get married. Okay? And so a lot of the time, what that usually meant is that the bloke went away, and he built a house that they would live in, and actually the house that he built would be the one that they would move into after they're married. So actually, it is a commitment once step on from engagement, okay? It's likely actually that they were engaged from kind of childhood, that often happened, um, but betrothal is kind of that one step up and say, no, we, we still want to do this and we're committing to this, and so it can only be broken by divorce. There's no other way to get out of a betrothal. So that's kind of the, the context to which we're introduced to this relationship between Joseph and Mary, uh, and Joseph himself, the actual person, we don't know a lot about. The most we kind of find out from Joseph is actually in kind of this birth narrative, um, and these birth narratives of Jesus, and, but like Mary, he is every much, every much an ordinary person as she is. He's an ordinary bloke. He, he's a carpenter. He's, he's in a small town in Israel. He's got the same desires for his life that actually many of us have or, or have had, that he wants to get married, he wants to have kids, he wants to contribute to the life of his family, that he is an ordinary bloke in an ordinary town. In fact, he's in a town that most, a lot of people look down on. Um, so Anna shared last week how one of Jesus' disciples, before he meets Jesus, actually goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's kind of one of those towns. And one of the other things that we know about Joseph the way that the text almost introduces him is that he's someone who's seeking to honor God and follow him. And we know this for a couple of reasons. So the first reason is that it says that Joseph was a just man. A just man. Well, God alone is just. And God alone is the measure and manner of justice. So as the text says, as God's word is speaking, as, as the Holy Spirit is inspiring Matthew to write, saying that he is a just man, that his heart mirrors the justice of God, that he has got something of the justice of God and how he lives his life. And the second reason we know that is actually the way that Joseph plays out this interaction with Mary. Because in the midst of their betrothal and all the excitement that that brings, you know, engagement and people coming together, the delight, the excitement, the anticipation of doing that, potentially in the middle of building a house for them to live together, Joseph, to his horror, finds out that Mary is pregnant. 
And because we're familiar with this story, because we get here every year and we listen to it and we hear it, we can almost have an emotional distance to this. Because we know that the child is conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? We know that. We know the story. We know that's true. And we do know that Joseph ends up accepting Mary. And so in our kind of, we see this as like a nice little interaction sort of thing and remove ourselves emotionally from it. But the only conclusion that anyone is coming to, including Joseph, is that Mary has been unfaithful. That she has slept with another man and is pregnant with that man's child. That's the only conclusion anyone else in the entire town, anyone else in the entire world is coming to at that point. So all of the hurt, all of the betrayal, and especially in this culture, all of the shame on Joseph and his family is something that, that Joseph is sitting in and living in deeply. That he's feeling all of those things keenly. That he is feeling all of that emotion is that people are chatting to him about this. People are stopping him in the street to talk about this. He's got his family involved. He's probably got the town elders involved. Everyone has got something to say. This would have been the talk of the town. And the law says what should happen is that Mary should be stoned to death as a result of what she's done. And Joseph, in all of that, despite the shame that is coming upon him and his family, despite the hurt, despite the betrayal, despite all of that kind of delight and joy lost in a moment, he decides to not put her to shame, but to divorce her quietly. This would not have been the advice of the members of his community. And this is not a normal reaction to shame or betrayal. Like we know this, right? That when we get into times of of tiredness or stress or when people hurt us or betray us, our our reaction so often isn't to consider the things of God and resolve to do what is right by him. So often our reaction is exactly that. It's a reaction to the problem. We we go with our emotions. We go with our good instincts. we, We go with what we feel is just in that moment. But that's not the reaction of Joseph. You know, I had this experience a couple of weeks ago, and we went away for the weekend, and, and as kind of we drove there, it's a long journey there, it's a long journey back, it had been a bit of a stressful weekend, and um, it had come off the back of a really quite emotional week, and so we got, we got back, and um, as I got back, as we pulled up to our house, sort of shattered, kind of done, done with traveling and sort of, sort of thing like that, just wanted to get in, and as I reversed in, I misjudged the parking space, um, and so I came in, and the parking space was too small for my car, and so as I was coming in, Kind of the, and I had to get very close to the car behind me to even attempt to get into this space. And the guy in the van behind me, he beeped his horn. I didn't realize I was in there. He's beeped his horn. And so kind of I stopped and I put my handbrake on and he got out of the car. And I thought, oh, mate, if you are wanting an argument right now with the mood that I'm in, I'm ready to have this argument. Um, and so I got out of the car, and do you know what? By the grace of God, the guy was so gracious. He was so good. He actually even moved his van back so we could fit our car in. He was so good. But I acted sinfully. I did not consider what this is like. I did not consider what that reaction was in line with who God was and what God would have expected or wanted in my life. I didn't ask God to fill me with his spirit and give me patience. I didn't listen to Hannah telling me to calm down. Like None of that happens. And actually, the reality, but that is it's such a stupid example. Such a stupid example compared to Joseph and what he was going to. But that's our experience, right? I'm stressed, I'm tired, I'm hurt, I'm upset. So I'm going to go with what I think is right. I'm going to sin. But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph was a just man. 
He, he sought to, to consider these things before God and to resolve in his heart to do what he needs to be right. See, Joseph was seeking to walk with God. He truly embodies what Micah 6.8 says is God's desire for us. And that is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And Joseph was doing that. You know, Paul, Paul Tacky shared this with us on the last Sunday he was with us. His encouragement to us as a church, as a people, was to live this life. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. And if I ever knew a man that embodies those values more than Paul, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever met anyone. This wasn't an accidental thing for Joseph, okay? It wasn't accidental. It didn't just happen. And it's weird that it happens, because he's not a scholar, okay? He's not a scribe. He's certainly not a priest. He's from the wrong tribe. He couldn't be a priest. He doesn't, he's not in that holy place. So how on earth does he get to this place where he is mirroring something of God so keenly, so deeply, that actually very few of his peers are there? How has he done that? By seeking God. You only catch the heart of God by knowing God. Let me say that again. You only catch the heart of God by knowing God. There's no shortcut to this. There's no kind of way around it. There's no special kind of hierarchy where some people get it more than others. It is only done by seeking God. We only live in line with what God has for us. We only live the life that reflects God's heart to people and to us when we get with God. You only live a life of justice, kindness, and humility by being in the presence of the just one, the kind one, the humble one, who is God. By getting that time with him in his daily word, in his word, by experiencing his presence, by prayer. And this is going to look different for everyone. There's not a prescriptive way that we're going to say, hey, you need to do this in the morning or this in the evening. It's not prescriptive. You find out how you meet with God, include those core things of his word and prayer and worship and Get with God in whatever that looks like and get involved. If you want to know the heart of God, if you want to reflect the heart of God, if you want to catch up in what he says is good and what he is doing, then you need to get that time with him. Don't let the excuse of time or busyness or tiredness or space to stop you from getting before God. You cannot and will not know his heart deeply and intimately and reflect that to others, even in times of stress and tiredness and anger and hurt, unless you're getting that time with him. Now, in my example that I gave with that kind of that interaction in the car, I didn't get that time in the morning. And I can't guarantee that my reaction would have been different. I can't guarantee that. But my experience of walking with God over the past 11 years actually says that it would be. That when I get that time alone with God in the morning, when I get that time to, to be with him and, and be in the word and to pray and just to be in his presence, that as I do that, that my whole day changes. All of it changes. My whole, my, the way I view people, the way I interact with people, the way I view hardship or things going wrong, it changes by just getting before the God who is good. We look to Joseph as the example of an ordinary bloke, a carpenter, a man who was looking to be a family man, who through seeking God, caught God's heart and reflected God. And if Joseph could do that, 
after 400 years of apparent silence on the part of God. If Joseph could do that, then we, how much more should we, who are people saved by grace through faith, people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, who need only ask to be filled, and God comes and fills us with his presence, how much more then should we be the ones that are living this out? who are able to say, no, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to give, I'm going to share, I'm going to be obedient, I'm going to be courageous, I'm going to live the life that God has called me to, because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, because we've been saved from our sins in Jesus. We've not just got these promises built up in the background, we've got these promises fulfilled in Christ with us and before us. But that's not the end of the story. And as Joseph has resolved to actually divorce Mary, he falls asleep, probably into quite an uneasy sleep, and an angel visits him in a dream, saying, take Mary as your wife, don't be afraid to do that, for what she has conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you shall call him Jesus, because this child will save people from their sins. In other words, this child is the promised one from Genesis. This child is the one who is promised to Abraham. This child is the one who is promised to David. This child is the one through whom all of these promises are caught up. And Joseph, being a descendant of David, knew that by adopting Jesus, he would come into the direct line of David. This child is the promised Messiah who will bring people back to God. What a thing to be told in a dream. I don't know what kind of things you dream about, um, but that's, <laughs> I don't often get uh, angels visiting me, t- talking to me about the incarnation. And there is a distinction made here between Mary and Joseph. So Mary has an angel appear to her and in, while she's awake, and she, she sees and hears what God has said, and she is obedient in the moment. And the distinction with Joseph is that Joseph actually, Joseph had to have a change of perspective. God has to change his perspective in that moment. And I'm going to kind of do a deliberate thing here. So I'm going to kind of put God's word here, authoritative, sovereign word of God. And I'm just going to come stand over here for a moment because the Bible doesn't tell us this. So I don't want to use it as an authoritative thing. But actually, it's, it's useful to kind of use our imagination to try and think what this would have been like. Because in these interactions, it may have been that Mary had sat down with Joseph and told him, hey, this angel visited me, visited me um, and part of that is that I've become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Um, it may be that she did that, it may be that someone else had told him. We don't actually know if Joseph was told the details of Mary's vision and Mary's dream. Okay, We don't know that. But the reality is, it's not like a really extravagant excuse. Okay, so I don't know if we've got any teachers in the room and they've heard really ridiculous excuses for being late or not handing in homework. Um, I once had a guy, I remember, I remember, I've got this memory of sitting in maths class and this guy walked in late um, and he said, sorry I'm late, sir, I was attacked by a possum. It was like... What? Um, he, didn't, he was lying and he didn't get away with it. It was a ridiculous excuse. But this isn't like that because in this example, no one is expecting that as an excuse. No, no, one, no one is going, oh, well, good one. That is amazing because we are... No one's expecting that. No one is expecting this woman from this town to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit for that one to be the Messiah. No one is expecting this. It's not an excuse. The only reaction people would have if Mary was telling people is they think she was mad or demon-possessed. There is no interaction in that where they're going, oh, that's reasonable. You know, maybe we should consider that. No one is thinking that. And so Joseph, God breaks through 
in this supernatural, supernatural way. It has to change Joseph's perspective. What's God telling you to change your perspective on this morning? Is it some of the things that God promises in his word are just too big? I can't be saved by grace. Surely I've got to do something in order to, to kind of earn my salvation or keep my salvation in God. Is he wanting to change the perspective that you're not worth God sending his son for? Other people, yeah, but not with what I've done. Not with what other people have done to me. Not with what I'm currently doing. That God, I'm not worth God sending his son for. I'm not worth that acceptance or that forgiveness. Is God wanting to change your perspective about you living in sin? Or living a half-baked Christian life where you've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church? Are you a different person at church and with your life group than you are at work or school or with that particular group of friends? Are you making excuses for attitudes, words, and behaviors that you know to be completely against what God has said is good? Is God wanting to change your perspective on you not being big enough or strong enough or clever enough or brave enough to share Jesus with the people around you, to live that life of obedience? Because God wants to break through this morning and change your perspective because all of those things that I've just spoken are lies. Just like the lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden that led them away from the promise of God, those lies are designed to lead us away from the presence of God. See, God changes Joseph's perspective to orchestrate the birth of his son. God becomes flesh so that you can be brought back to the presence of God. Not to stay away, not to be led away by lies, not to be kept in captivity to things that aren't true. That God has brought in Jesus total freedom from all of those things. That actually we can have total freedom and know God in all of those things completely, just a total unity with us and God that none of those things can hold us back. What is God telling you to change your perspective on this morning? You know, for me, one of the biggest things that God has had to change my perspective on is actually his heart for people that don't know him. You know, and actually, this is true even when getting the job here and coming here. Actually, in my, you know, I've, I've got very specific memories in my first year here where God was just hitting this again and again because I thought sharing Jesus with, with people, particularly kind of people that don't know him and people that don't know him are young people was the most scary and embarrassing thing I could possibly think about. And so my secret plan was to equip the young people to do it so I didn't have to. Um, and God had to change my perspective because it was a sinful perspective. It was a wrong perspective. And so actually God was changing my perspective. And as I just got that time with him and as he was gracious and good in showing me his heart and as I stepped out and God gave me opportunities to share, I just started getting caught up in the heart of God for people that don't know him and what he can do and what that looks like and the freedom it brings and the peace it brings and the joy it brings and the, the wonder that it is to be caught up in that. And now it is my, one of my favorite things to do. I'm asking God continue this give me the opportunity. I just want to talk about Jesus with people. Just help me to, to impact, to speak. I'm going to go after it. Just give me the opportunity. Help me. But God had to change my perspective over a period of time as I just was easy revealed to me kind of just the wrongness of that attitude. What's God telling you to change your perspective on this morning? What's he wanting you to leave here this morning different from what you came in and the way you think? And then the text says that Joseph woke from that dream. And he does all that God had commanded. He took Mary as his wife. And later on in Luke, we see that Joseph is even obedient into some pretty 
extreme circumstances. You know, later on we see that actually he takes his incredibly pregnant wife on a very long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem to respond to this census. And actually, if kind of we, we look at the story in context, potentially one of the reasons why he's getting so desperate looking for an inn is because Mary's in active labor. Um, okay, if you've ever seen a woman in active labor, it's a terrifying thing to not have a place to go at that point. And actually, and he, and he, but he's there and he's been, and he's been obedient to God. And he's, I'm, I'm, I've married Mary despite the shame that's probably brought on his family. And he's, and, he's known, and he's not known Mary. You know, they've not consummated their marriage. And, he's, and he's, he's brought her to Bethlehem and he's knocking on these doors and he's going, God, where are you at with this? Because the son of the good, I know this kid is the Messiah. I know that this is your son. I know that this is the promised one. And he's in a stable and now he's been born and I've got nowhere to put him but this feeding trough. Have you ever seen an animal feeding trough? Gross. It's the only place that the Messiah, the, the, the Son of God, and actually Joseph is obedient in just saying, God, just, I know you're in this. I know you're doing this. I'm, I'm going to be obedient to what you're doing. And God is calling you to be obedient to all that he has commanded you. See, Joseph was an ordinary bloke that showed extraordinary obedience because he knew and believed in a God who was awful, awesome, powerful, present, and totally faithful to his promises. And don't think having an ordinary life discounts you. Don't think that your, your profession or lack of a profession or age or kind of skill set disqualifies you from living a life from obedience. Joseph was a carpenter. David was a shepherd. Elisha was a farmer. The disciples were fishermen and tax collectors. I could go on and on and on. And we too can be ordinary people showing extraordinary obedience as we know and believe in our awesome God, which Philippians 2 describes as, who those in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Joseph was obedient to God. And as a result, as a result, he was the one that gets to proclaim over Jesus at his birth, at his naming, this is Jesus. Let's not lose the significance of that. Joseph is the one who gets to say, this is the Savior. This, this kid here in this manger, this one, he's the Savior. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one that Genesis 3 promised. He's the one who's a descendant of Abraham. He's the one that's a descendant of David. He's the one that's going to bring people back from their sins. Joseph gets to do that by being obedient to God. Joseph gets the privilege of being the first person to speak, this is it. He's here over the life of Jesus. Don't miss out on seeing God do extraordinary things through you as you live out a life of obedience to him. I'm just going to finish with a couple of stories, um, hopefully, that just help with this. Um, so recently, um, me and Han have been, have been praying for, for a few of our friends, and, and one of our friends that we've been praying for 
um, Han had round the other day. Um, and what we've been praying is that we just get the opportunity to share the gospel. And, and I, I got to walk in on Monday night to Han just having this amazing conversation with, with our friend about Jesus and who he was. And it all started off the back of kind of this testimony where at Baby Gems, this, this, this lady had been prayed for um, because she had some health issues. And actually, she went back to the doctor and didn't have those anymore. And so actually, this sparked this conversation where Han was like, right, and she was like, I don't know why. And Hannah was like, well, maybe it's because, you know, we prayed. And that's an answer to prayer. And that and, and led to this amazing conversation that ended with her taking a Bible home and a gospel tract home. And it was just through ordinary obedience, just through being a mum, just being at mum's groups, just through having friends around in the house, that Hannah got that opportunity to see God just do something epic. And we've got a young person here, and I'm, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to embarrass them protect them from that. But there's this incredible story where um, on a Tuesday night, which is our life group night, that they came in one night with a friend. And kind of, as I was kind of just, you know, asking who they were and all this sort of stuff, it's, you know, kind of got introduced to this friend as someone who'd just become a Christian. And kind of, as I heard the story unfold, what it turns out has happened is that through the witness, just over just being a friend over a period of years to this friend, this young person had led this friend to Jesus, to led them Christ. And actually, that person has come back every Tuesday night ever since that point. Total kind of non-Christian background, no kind of awareness of that, but just through the life and example, the ordinary obedience of that young person, actually, they were brought in. And it's, fun. it's an incredible story of extraordinary obedience by just living an ordinary life. Another one which is, I love telling this story, is I was at, I was at a family wedding in May, and um, and basically, I was there, and I was chatting to my brother-in-law, who's he's, he's not following Jesus, and um, he was talking about how he's got this super old back injury from when he was playing sport, and he's got a very physical job, and his back's done in, and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, "Can I just pray for you? Um, because I'd love to, I'd love to pray for you for that." And he was like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" And so we went out onto onto, onto this kind of balcony bit, and I prayed for him. I didn't even lay hands; I just prayed, just looked at him, and just prayed. Um, and in that moment, all of the pain went from his back. And to my knowledge, it's not come back ever since. He doesn't talk about his back hurting anymore. And another one that I had a real privilege of being involved in was when, we, when me and Hannah were at, uh, at Moreland's. We, uh, we went into Bournemouth one time with a group of our friends. And as we were walking um, up Bournemouth Hind Street, we, we saw a couple of homeless people. And uh, in all honesty, we walked past them the first time, but really felt convicted that God had called us to go back. And as we went back and we chatted to them, we, kind of, we heard some of their story. And so we took them into McDonald's um, for a nice, nutritious meal. Um, but we took them into Mackey's and I kind of, uh, we bought them food. And as we were kind of just talking and sharing the story, it turns out one of this, the lady in the couple um, was from the Philippines and that she'd, she'd been over for years. And because she was homeless, because of their financial situation, she hadn't been able to contact her family. The family didn't know whether she was dead or alive. They had no idea where she was, what she was doing. And so we were able to give her a phone, and, and she, she was able to call her family. And she was in bits because she had not spoken to them in years, and they were in bits on the other end. And kind of after all this happened, we just sat and we were just sharing about Jesus, and we just after we can pray for them. In the middle of McDonald's in Bournemouth, we were just praying for these, with these guys, and, and just they were, they were crying, and we were in tears and bits as well. And it was just an incredibly, incredible moment. But it just came through just ordinary lives, just being obedient to what God was calling them towards. I've got so many more stories, but I'm going to have to stop there. Don't miss out on God doing extraordinary things through you as you just live out a life of obedience to him. I'm just going to invite the band back. And uh, I'm just going just gonna to give some things that I felt like God is going to call in us to respond to this morning. 
And you know, responding to, to God on a Sunday morning and coming up and getting prayer, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. There is not a single person here who doesn't need God to help them and move in them and work through them in their lives. So if any of this is touching you this morning, then please come and receive prayer. First thing is just for our daily walk with God. Just if actually you find it hard, you don't know how to get into it, you don't know how to, how to kind of to, to build this thing of knowing God, just to come and receive prayer, to persist in that, to stop making excuses and to know God daily. If it's actually any of the things that I spoke about, that actually you know God is poking you about changing your perspective this morning, come and get prayer about your perspective being changed so you can live in the freedom that God has for you. And the courage to be filled with the Spirit that we may be obedient to what God is asking. If you want to encourage this morning, if you wanted to see something more of what God is doing, then come this morning and receive prayer to be filled with courage to do that. And the final response before I just give my, my couple of words of knowledge is, um, I didn't mention it, but there is a real sense where there is a response for fathers in this text. You know, if you're a dad and you feel like you are ill-equipped to share with God, not with God, share with your children who God is and what he's done to raise your children up in that, imagine Joseph. Joseph knows this, this child is the Messiah. Joseph knows this is the Savior. Joseph knows this is, this is the one who's going to save Israel from their sins. And yet, the Bible is abundantly clear that Joseph's job is to raise Jesus up in the knowledge and the instruction of him. Actually, part of the reason why Joseph, Jesus would have known the scriptures is actually because he's been taught them. If you feel inadequate this morning being a father, no matter what stage that is, don't matter if your kids are grown up, still in the womb, not yet conceived, like where, where, wherever you're at with it, if you feel like there is something within you that is saying, I, just, I feel an inadequacy here, or I'm just, I feel the pressure and the weight of that, come and receive prayer this morning that God would equip you to, to be the fathers and the men that he's called you to be. And the two words of knowledge that um, I felt God gave me this morning, the first one is a left shoulder. Um, you can't raise it above kind of this height, that there's an injury there that stops you from raising it above that height. Um, and the second one, which I'm not so sure about, but is that is there's someone here with a problem with their left, is it vent- ventricle? Ventricle um, in their heart. Um, so to respond to that. You have been listening to a sermon from Christchurch Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, visit ChristchurchHailsham.org.